All right, let me uh, see. Am I on, Brother Phil? All right. Well, it is, uh, it is an absolute privilege to be here with you uh, again tonight, and uh, I am delighted to have the opportunity to share with you what the Lord has laid on my heart. I was going to say welcome to Seattle, because uh, it kind of feels like that outside with all the water we've had. Uh, of course, we do live, uh, as Brother Phil said, about 40, 45 minutes away and almost needed pontoons to get here, it felt like. But uh, praise the Lord, uh, he got us here safely. Uh, when we first moved to Georgia about uh, 13 years ago, uh, we were up in North Georgia at that point in time. And uh, that was right at the beginning of some droughts that were beginning. And uh, one of the things that I, I promised myself, I said, I will never again complain about rain. And so uh, certainly Lord knows what we have need of and provides for us, and uh, certainly thankful for the rain he brings, even when there's a lot of it at one time. Well, I'm looking forward to sharing what the Lord has uh, laid on my heart. I'll tell you tonight, I've really went back and forth over what to preach tonight. I had two things on my heart, and the Lord really settled it this afternoon. And so I want to take you to the book of John tonight. So if you'll turn over to John chapter number 20 with me. John chapter number 20. Several years ago, when I was uh, in high school, my parents, my dad was a uh, Ford retiree. I've got a brother who's been with Ford for about 25 years now as an engineer. So you can imagine what uh, was always parked in our driveway growing up. Uh, my parents uh, liked to drive Lincoln Town Cars. And uh, when I was in high school, uh, my folks got a uh, 1991 Lincoln Town Car. It was used. And uh, we had had it for, I think at that point, maybe a couple years. And uh, we were loading the, the trunk. And I was in the garage, and my dad called me over and said, Chad, come here for a minute. He said, I want you to look at this. And over on the, uh, the passenger side of the car, over toward the wheel well... He pointed at something. You know, it was so funny to both of us because, again, we'd had the car for a couple years. We'd, we'd taken a number of trips. We'd, uh, you know, put things in and out of the trunk all the time. But for the life of me, I will tell you, I had never before paid any attention to that switch. Didn't even know it was there. And for my dad, the same exact thing was true. He said, did you realize this switch was here? I said, Dad, I had no idea. Next to that switch, it said uh, air ride and Apparently, in those uh, older town cars, they had the ability to turn off the air suspension that was in them. I'm not really sure why you'd want to do that. I guess they had a reason for it, but, uh, you know, luxury cars sometimes they give you things you don't need. But uh, I'll never forget, it was there all the time, and we had just simply ignored it. Well, I said all that to say this tonight. What we're going to look at here in the book of John is kind of like that for me. You know, uh, I'll never forget reading the book of John for the first time when I was in high school. And then, of course, in college and Bible classes, studying New Testament and reading through there. But i got to tell you, I had never considered until just a couple months ago when the Lord showed me this truth, I'd never considered what we're going to look at tonight. And I don't know about you, but I absolutely love it when the Lord shows me something from His Word that I've never seen before. Something I just kind of missed or glossed over the whole time. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity to share this with you tonight. 
You think about the disciples of Jesus, they were, needless to say, an interesting lot. We had fishermen, we had a tax collector, a doctor, a zealot who wanted to overthrow Rome, and even a thief. But as we read through the Gospels, there is one disciple in particular who stands out. Over and over we see him in some very unique situations, and we see some unique truths about the Apostle John. Tonight I want to preach to you a message entitled, What What Made John So Unique? We're going to look at three lessons about John's uniqueness tonight. The first thing that we'll see is that he was unique in his portrayal. In other words, he was unique in the way the Bible depicts him to us. We're in John chapter 20. I want you to read one verse with me here as we get started tonight. Verse number 2. The Bible says, Then she runneth, and cometh the Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. You know, one of the things that's unique about John is his title, or should I say his designation. I'm going to give you a little something tonight. This is free. I won't charge you for it. When you are reading through your Bible and you come across a title or a name or reference to an individual that's unique... Let me tell you, that's there for a reason. And those things, when we come across them, ought to cause us to want to stop and pause and say, wait a minute, what's special about that? What I'm referring to here is this designation given to John. And let me say it's the only designation given to him. Or or even let me say this, he is the only one in Scripture given this title. He is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We find it in John chapter 13, verse 23, John 19, verse 26, John chapter 20, verse 2. We just read John 21, verse 7, and 21, verse 20. You know, I remember reading about uh, this the first time, uh, again, when I was a high school student. Our youth pastor had challenged us to go through the book of John. And I remember coming across this title and feeling almost a little bit strange about it. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's an interesting name. And perhaps there'd be some liberal theologians out there, or or even if we took a humanistic approach to this, and we'd say, well, yeah, I get it. John's writing this about himself. Yeah, I'm John the Great. Let me remind you tonight that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The reason we read this tonight is not because John wanted to say this about himself. It's because the Lord wanted us to know this about John. Five times, in fact, it's written here in this gospel and no place else in the Bible. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not only do we see the unique designation, but we see an understood declaration. Again, I mentioned that it made me feel a little funny the first time I read this. And and not just because of the uniqueness of the title. Because as a young man, I started to think, well, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Did that mean that Jesus maybe loved him more than the other disciples? Well, I want you to understand tonight that's not what this title means. The title we read here tonight actually refers to the closeness 
of John's relationship to the Savior. They were so intimate, so close, such close friends, that even as the Lord Jesus Christ considered his relationship to to others in that inner circle, John was so much closer. You know, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, I should want that same, same truth to be thought of and true of me in my own life. That I'm that close to him that perhaps even other people would look at me and, and see that. The first truth tonight was that he was unique in his portrayal. The second thing we see is that he was unique in his position. You're already in the book of John. We're going to go back several chapters now to John chapter number 13 and do some more reading here in the Word of God. In John chapter number 13, beginning in verse number 15, reading down through verse number 23. The Bible says, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking here, he says, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I sendeth receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. The setting for John chapter number 13 takes place in the upper room. And if you're anything like me, and I I don't know, maybe you're not, and that's perhaps good for you tonight if you're not, but when I think of the upper room, my mind instantly goes to a painting that we probably all have seen, a famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci of The Last Supper. And of course, you, you think about the setting for that painting and of course for this passage that we're talking about here tonight. I think many times, unfortunately, perhaps we think of this setting in the wrong way. Perhaps, in fact, we think of it in the, the setting of, well, this is a, a group of men that, that appreciated each other, cared about each other, and it's their last hurrah, their last get-together. And while that is the case, the Bible tells us Jesus knew it. In verse number 1, we didn't read it tonight, but he said he knew that his hour was come. What we read and what we understand is the disciples did not have that same understanding. As a matter of fact, we understand based on the conversations that they've had here, they really had no idea what was about to happen. As the Lord Jesus Christ begins to to fellowship with them, we see Jesus do something that... uh, in my mind, is almost unimaginable, and certainly that was Peter's response as well. After they had uh, taken their, their, their food up, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ looked at these disciples, these followers, the Bible says that he girded himself with a towel, and he, he began to wash their feet. 
Now, the custom of the day was to do that before a meal. Usually you had a household servant who would come, and as part of Middle Eastern hospitality, that, that servant would go and minister to the people, and they would wash their hands and feet. And, of course, we understand that in their society things were very different. Uh, they didn't have uh, necessarily paved roads like we do today. Things were dusty and dirty, and, of course, they didn't sit at tables. If you know the Jewish customs, they sat on the floor. And they would have a, a low table that they would sit at. And so you imagine somebody's feet being near the food or near the place of eating, then the custom makes good sense. But the Lord Jesus Christ goes and ministers to disciples and, and begins to wash their feet, and Peter gets offended. He says, whoa, you're not washing my feet, Master. The Lord Jesus makes it very plain to him that you need to let me wash your feet or you have no part with me. And, of course, Peter does what Peter often does. He, he kind of over-responds or over-reacts, and he says, Well, Lord, if that's the case, then don't just wash my feet, but my hands and my head also. You know, give me a full bath. And Jesus says, Peter, that's not the point here. And so, again, he is teaching them in humility about service. But then he makes a statement. He says, But one of you will... Betray me. And again, I, I think many times we kind of don't catch the seriousness of the situation. But here depicted for us in verse number 22 that, that we just read, then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. I, I can imagine they're sitting there next to each other and, and, and perhaps they're thinking, now who is it going to be? Hey, hey, you know, Thomas... Thomas likes to doubt a lot of the things that Jesus says and, and does. Maybe he's the one the Lord's talking about. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says they're doubting. They're wondering. They're not sure of what's going to happen and who this individual might be the Lord Jesus had referred to. Of course, we know who it was. But as they're questioning and they're wondering, the Bible shows us an individual who's not all worked up. An individual who's not involved in the fray or the discussion, as it were. As a matter of fact, he's here pictured in this scene of serenity. The Bible tells us, verse 23, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Here is John pictured, while everybody else is, is murmuring and talking and pointing fingers, here's John just calmly leaning on the chest of Jesus. Can I tell you, as we look at John in the scripture so many times, we, we see him as just a, a source of peace, a source of calm, even a source of sureness, of trusting Jesus, exuding a faith that no one else seems to have. And as I thought about that, I thought, why would John be the one who, who would have such peace and, and patience and, and just trust I started thinking about that proximity to the heart of his Savior. As he leaned upon the, the chest of the one who would ultimately die for him. You know the thing that struck me about this Last Supper setting? 
You know, the Bible does not tell us, well, John sat there for a while and then he got up and then, and then Peter moved in and then he got up and then James came over. The Bible does not say that. As a matter of fact, I, I think that we get a pretty clear picture here that this is probably not a one-time event, but because of the closeness of these two individuals, it's something that frequently happened. Let me say this tonight by way of application. If you and I are willing to sit where no one else will sit, then we'll be able to stand when no one else will stand. That was John. As a matter of fact, thinking about his stand takes us to another part of the book of John. I'm going to have you turn over a few more pages with me now to John chapter number 19. In John 19, we're going to read a couple more verses here. This is the accounting of the crucifixion. And in John 19, verse 25 and 26, the Bible says, Another stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing... Uh, by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. You know, one of the things that jumps out at me about the crucifixion scene is the noted absence of people that I would think should be there. You stop and think about the miracles performed by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels. You know, Jesus never, never turned anyone away that, that needed help. We, we don't read that. We don't read people coming to him and him saying, nah, I'm busy today. I, I'm sorry, I, I've got a tea time to get to. I've got lunch plans. We don't read that. As a matter of fact, what we read over and over in the Gospels is he looked out on the multitudes and had compassion on them. My question for you tonight, church family, is where's the multitude at now? And what was undoubtedly his most difficult and darkest hour, where are the people that Jesus was there for when they needed him? As a matter of fact, where were his own disciples? What we do not read here is all these names listed. We don't read about the, the maniac of Gadara who was healed of the legions of demons that possessed him. We don't read about the woman with the issue of blood who, who the physicians had tried to heal but could not. And yet by touching the hem of his garment was healed. We don't read about Jairus whose daughter was healed or even Lazarus here. We don't read these names here present at the crucifixion, but you saw whose name we did read. We read about John. And there was something interesting to me as John took his stand there at the crucifixion. He was not ashamed, but he loved his Savior. And something happens here that again, I'm going to give you as a little freebie tonight. It's, it's not necessarily part of the sermon, but it's good enough. I said, I've got to mention this. 
As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he, he looks down, and, and folks, Jesus didn't say a whole lot from the cross. But as he looks down and he sees the disciple whom he loved, he sees John, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. Now I want you to understand something about this tonight. The Lord Jesus Christ, as, as he addresses Mary, his earthly mother, he is not being crass or, or harsh with her. As a matter of fact, if you remember his first miracle at the wedding supper of, in Cana of Galilee, she came to him and said, uh, they're out of juice, they're out of wine to drink, can you help them? And he responded and said, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ was not harsh in responding to her by saying, woman. I know in our society today, uh, at least growing up in my household, I wouldn't have addressed my mom that way. If I would have, I would have been picking myself off the floor probably from either her or dad or both. (laughs) You, You didn't say that. So why did Jesus say this? Well, he said it because he was making a point. You see, the Bible refers to her here as his mother. And no doubt he addressed her as such in a son-mother relationship. But when it comes to talking about performing miracles, and in this situation, he is not looking at her as mother to son. He is looking at her as her savior. And so as he takes this approach to her, He is concerned, concerned for her well-being, for her keeping. And so he looks at the one who's been faithful and close to him all along, John, and gives him the assignment, the duty, and says, John, I want you to take care of her. Now, we don't know, we understand, they're not related, okay? We know that. But Jesus gives him the responsibility as if John was her own son. And I got to thinking about that a little bit because the Bible tells us what we read already. That from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. He did exactly as the Lord Jesus Christ had asked. You know, the Bible tells us that John wrote, of course, the Gospel of John. We have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. Five books of the Bible But there's something else that we understand about the Apostle John. John became a pastor at the church at Ephesus. Could you imagine? Testimony time comes up at the church in Ephesus. Somebody have a a testimony they'd like to share about, about Jesus. Mary, would you like to share something? The woman who observed the Savior growing up firsthand. I could imagine she had some stories to share. Folks, what I'm indicating to you tonight is I believe because he was obedient, because he was faithful, because he took a stand, that John received a unique blessing that no one else got. And I'm going to tell you tonight that when we do the same thing, we stand for truth, we stand for the word of God, we stand for righteousness, you and I will receive blessings as a result. I believe that. And I believe it's depicted here for us as well. 
The third thing that we're going to see was unique about John. We said, first of all, his portrayal, how he's depicted for us in Scripture. Secondly, we said his position was unique. And now thirdly and finally tonight, we're going to see that his perspective was unique. For this truth, I want us to go over to the book of 1 John. Toward the end of the New Testament. We're going to read really just one verse here that John wrote for us. In 1 John chapter number 4. In verse number 7. The Bible says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Now I said just a moment ago, if you caught it, that John is credited for writing five books of the Bible. The Gospel of John. In that we have, of course, the accounting or or the telling of the story of Jesus. The book of Revelation, which of course is end time prophecy. And then these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The thing that is so interesting and so unique to me is the theme of his writing in these letters in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Guess what his theme is? It's what we just read. The theme is love. And as I got to thinking about that a little bit, I thought, you know, it is probably no mistake that the disciple who seemed to understand Not just that Jesus loved him, but I think John had an understanding of how much Jesus loved him. That in his writings, he would convey love to the readers. As a matter of fact, John specifically writes about the theme of love and it uh, repeats itself. It repeatedly appears all over his writings. Chapter 2, verse 5, John 4, verse 7, 4, verse 8, 4, verse 10, 4, verse 12, 4, verse 16, 4, verse 20, and 5, verse 3. Now, now, Pastor, you, you said he seemed to have a, a, an indication, perhaps, of, of how much Jesus loved him. Where do you suppose he got that idea from? Let me ask you just a, a question we all know the answer to tonight. If you are leaning upon someone's chest, what do you feel? Their heartbeat. What do you hear? The heartbeat. Could you imagine being the one to feel and hear the heartbeat of the one who came to die for you to be your Savior? I can't fathom that. As John came to the conclusion, the very reason he came to earth was to die for me. The reason that heart was beating was for me. John understood it was for love, that Jesus came and that Jesus died. And as he wrote those letters, the emphasis became upon the love of God. No, tonight, as we draw to our conclusion, we mentioned that John wrote the book of Revelation. I don't know if you're familiar with how that particular writing came to be, but it's an amazing story. John was sentenced to 
effectively what should have been death. He was boiled in oil by Rome. But he didn't die. So instead, they, uh, they sentenced him to the Isle of Patmos to live out the rest of his days. And there in the book of Revelation chapter 1, the Bible tells us what happened to John at Patmos. In John 1 verse 1, the Bible says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John. You know, I started thinking about God's perspective as he looks at me. As he looks at you. God saw John as his servant. I wonder tonight, if your name was mentioned in heaven, how would you be described? That, that child that has gone their own way and... and Fortunately, I'm going to have to chastise them to get them back where they need to be. That individual that, that I have blessed and I have helped and I have done so much for, and, and they're so stubborn. And I try and lead them and, and try and help them, and they don't listen. You know, one of the things I, I love about the story of John When we were reading there in John chapter number 13 in that setting in the upper room. As John was leaned up against the chest of Jesus. Something happened. We didn't read the verse. It's a little further down. But something happened that was so interesting to me. In the midst of all the discussion, all the other disciples pointing fingers, wondering who would be this betrayer of which the Lord Jesus spoke. Peter looks at John and says, would you inquire of the Lord for us? Now you think about that for a minute. This perception of this unique individual. God's perception of him was that he was his servant. Let me say tonight, that should be what we desire for our lives as well. And let me also say tonight that if that's true, if we're servants, then he has to be our master. But tonight I want to take this from up here to down where you are. What is other people's perception of you? Fellow disciples, do you realize it would have been just as easy for Peter to say, Hey Jesus, who's sitting right next to John, could you give us a little more indication, Master? Could you, could you help us out a little bit? We're not sure who you're talking about here. But because John was so close to him, Peter said, would you mind getting a little more information? Would you mind seeing if the master would tell you who he's talking about? See, when I read this, I was just convicted. I thought, you know, I want to have such a close walk with him, such a close relationship, that people would look at me and say, hey, would you pray for me? Hey, I know you're close to God. Would you help me? Would you give me insight? Would you help me understand this passage of Scripture? Would you be the one to ask the Master for me? 
Now, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I've worked secular jobs before, and people knew I was a Christian, and I had people on occasion who come to me and say, would you pray for me? Let me say, it's a privilege to pray, and I, I'm thrilled to do that any time. But you realize this is not the unsaved people we're talking about here. These were the disciples, fellow believers. And I wonder, is your testimony in this church such that other people would put their finger upon you and say, you know what, you're someone I believe who's close to God. Someone who knows how to get a hold of him, to get his ear, as we say. And I've got this need. Our family has this issue. Would you pray for us? Maybe as you consider that thought, you're convicted a little bit tonight the way I was when I started thinking about it. The thing that excites me to tell you tonight is if that is not the case for you and you can't answer these questions in the affirmative. In other words, you can't say tonight, yo, yeah, pastor, I'm that close. The good news is you can be. In the book of James, the Bible says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. I love that verse. I heard a story years ago about a young couple who'd just gotten married. They were seated in an old pickup truck, a bench-style seat, and newlyweds, the husband and wife, were just close together, right up by the steering wheel. And an older couple, been married 30-plus years, came along and, and observed that young married couple. And she noted to her husband, she said, you look, you see how close they are. She said, we used to be close like that, but, but look at us, we're, we're several feet apart. And the husband said this, he said, honey, he said, I've never moved. Now that is not a condemnation of the wife, but it is a truth that we all must consider tonight. God doesn't move until we do. When we draw nigh to him, he steps closer to us. You understand, John wasn't like lucky. He didn't win the lottery and say, oh, you get the special seat next to the Savior. John chose that. He desired it. He made it happen. And I'm going to tell you tonight, if you and I desire to be close to the Savior, the same thing is going to be true for you and I. We've got to want it. It won't happen by accident, by chance, by mistake, only by intention. So my question for you is, the uniqueness of this individual, do you want the same thing to be true of you? I'll tell you right now, the world needs some unique Christians. But do we want it? Wanted enough to make it happen. I'm going to ask you tonight to stand to your feet, head bowed, and eyes closed. We're not going to be here long tonight, I don't believe, but folks, I believe we need to have the opportunity tonight for you to respond to the preaching of God's Word. Let me say tonight, if you respond during this invitation time, you are not responding to the preacher. Please don't ever think you are. 
If you respond tonight, you're responding to the truth that you've heard and to the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Perhaps it is tonight that you need to say by by way of commitment, I want that uniqueness that John had. And tonight I'm going to make it a matter of intent to pursue him in such a way that I'll get close to him. Not just that I'll know it, so that others will see it. So that it will be true of me. So much so that other people, when they look at my life, they can't miss it. That There might even be other people in our church family who will look at me and say, Hey, would you pray for me? Because I believe when you pray, heaven's listening. Tonight, if you need to respond, the altar's open to you. Would you come and have a word of prayer and make that commitment if you desire it, if you're willing to?